Well then, we'll begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in thy sight, O God, my strength and my Redeemer. Well, I'm very glad that in the course of these lectures, uh, Father Moriarty has always uh, given a, a brief comment on not wanting to be uh, judgmental, but this is really about our understanding the truths of the Catholic faith and, and forming our understanding that, that because God is revealed in human nature, divine and natural law, what is best for us in this world and especially in the world to come. And uh, it's not because we as a Catholic Church are, are, you know, that we members of the Catholic Church are particularly bright that we figured all this out, but it's because God has revealed it to us in our very nature, but then also in a special way in divine revelation. And so it's, I, I always have in mind uh, a couple of, you know, things, I've just been thinking about this a lot during Lent. Um, you know, there's the parable from Luke chapter 18 of the... Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And the Pharisee is all full of himself and he says, Lord, I am thankful that I'm not like other people. These are all the good things I do and I don't do all these bad things. And he lists a bunch of them and he's so entirely full of himself. And the tax collector doesn't even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that was the one who went home right with God. And there's another story in the gospel. Uh, the man comes up to Jesus and he says to him, Master, will many be saved? Subtext being, I know I will be, but you know, will, will there be a lot of people like me? And what's Jesus' response? He says, you try to get in the narrow way. You try to get in the narrow way. Don't worry about them. You try to get in the narrow way. The answer is the question. It is a narrow way, and it's difficult that leads to life. And few there be that find it. But the emphasis is on the person who's asking the question. He cuts right to the heart of the matter. And we're going to be talking tonight about Jesus' teaching on the radical indissolubility of Christian marriage and the same sort of thing is going to be here for us and looking at these things that Jesus has said. It's a difficult path, but he opens this up for us. Well, let's start then. What is, I mentioned the radical indissolubility of Christian marriage. And this really comes out of our understanding that marriage witnesses the faithful love Christ has for his church. And even in the Old Testament, Marriage was seen, especially later on in the Old Testament, as, as, uh, especially after the Babylonian exile, that, but even a little bit before then, that, that marriage witnesses the love, the, this, this relentless love God has for his people. And so when we think about God remains faithful to us even when we're not. And I'm very grateful that that's the case. But God remains faithful to us even when we're not and if God's love is radically indissoluble by his own choice and election of us, so too when we witness our faithful love in marriage, we're witnessing to God's faithful love for us. Let's start with one of the uh, uh, readings from the Gospel of Mark where the question really comes up about 
divorce and remarriage because I really want to present why we teach what we teach. But before I get to that, everything that we believe, you know, the divine revelation about, uh, about the radical indissolubility of Christian marriage, we know that from divine revelation from scripture, and we're going to talk about that. But as with everything that we've talked about in these lectures so far, and I assume as we go forward, is that this is written in our nature. And so, although we may be by natural revelation and, 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 and simple you know, natural law reasoning from our human nature, we may not be able to get to the fullness of the understanding, the radical indissolubility of marriage. We can still get pretty close. And we can understand just from a reflection on our own human nature that marriage is intended to be long-term. Think about human sexuality. We have a long gestation period. We have a nine-month gestation period. I know when I was a kid, we had dogs, and you know, it was about two months, right? We, as human beings, we have a nine-month gestation period. And toward the end of that time, although I won't say the woman is helpless, because I've known some very strong women who continued working right to the end, but they're certainly in need of help. Um, difficulty walking, difficulty standing, difficulty doing ordinary tasks. And sometimes it can be actually quite, you know, require bed rest. Um, and then when the baby is born, the baby is utterly helpless. It is months before the baby is able to move on its own, maybe a year before it's walking. It is years before it's able to feed itself and take care of itself. Many, many years. You know, we don't reach sexual maturity until we're in our teens. We don't reach our physical strength, you know, peak of our physical strength until we're in our early 20s. Our brains are still forming until we're in our mid-20s. And then we continue, we hope, to grow in wisdom. So basically, built into human nature and human sexuality and the propagation of the species to the next generation is the sense that we need help all the way along. And so, if you, know, you have the biological imperative is to pass your genes on to the next generation for every organism, and then you want to see that next generation pass on to the next generation, right? It just stands to reason that just from the very way that we are built, the best way to do that is for the man to protect the woman during the time when she is, is vulnerable because she's pregnant, protect the mother and child during that, that time of the, the child is utterly helpless, guide the child uh, together with the child's mother in growing up over those many years until we reach maturity so that the next generation can be passed on and then to be there to be the wise guide to continue on like this. So built right into our nature. Maybe not that radical indissolubility, but we can see that the ideal is certainly there in our very human nature that, uh, that marriage, the relationship between a man and a woman ordered toward the procreation and education of children is fundamentally long-term. And anything less than that is going to have consequences. So that's the natural law. But of course, the natural law, then God doesn't contradict it, but he completes it in the divine revelation. So let's turn in our scriptures to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. The Pharisees came up in order to test him. 
asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, For your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is probably the clearest statement of this in the Gospels. But you know what? This comes up in four places in the Gospels. Four places. Now that is remarkable. Why is it remarkable? Because the gospel writers often don't go over the same territory that other gospel writers did unless they're making a particular point. This particular locution, this particular statement by Jesus comes up four places in the gospels. It comes up twice in Matthew, comes up here in Mark, it comes up in Luke, and then furthermore, St. Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as a saying coming from the Lord, not from him this indissolubility of marriage. That shows that there are very few things of sayings of Jesus that are repeated that many times in Scripture. Okay? So this is important. The early church was obviously wrestling with this one. And then let's talk about the context of this, though, because in each of the gospel writers will take different sayings of Jesus, things that he had said maybe over the course of three years of his ministry, and they kind of pull them together. You can't put everything in, so they pick and choose the things that are relevant to the particular things that they want to cover. And scripture scholars, you know, and a lot of them will use German words like Sitzenleben, which means a situation or setting in life, okay? And there are several layers of Sitzenleben. Uh, the first is, you know, when, what was going on when Jesus actually made his comment? If you could get into a time machine, say Doctor Who's TARDIS, and go back and see, you know, walk Palestine when he said the things, you know, what, who's present, uh, you know, what Jewish feast is approaching, you know, so you can get the, the context of the actual moment. That's one layer, the actual historical moment. Another layer of Sitzenleben is where is it in the gospel? It's literary context. Because like I say, the gospel writers are going to take things from over the course of three years of ministry and they're going to focus them on particular events uh, in order to teach something. And then finally, there's uh, the Sitzenleben of how does the church use it in its liturgy? Is it attached to a particular sacrament or a particular feast day and so forth? And we'll look at principally two, the first two here, though. What's going on here? We get the sense of it in particular when we look at these, this particular passage as it appears in Matthew. Why is that? Each of the gospel writers have a different audience. Matthew is writing to a Jewish Christian audience. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. So Mark leaves out stuff that's not really going to be relevant to a Gentile audience. Um, and so Matthew adds a couple little details. Let's turn to Matthew 19. 
The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That was something new. That was something added that Mark didn't have in there. Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever, they're asking him. Now, we're not... We're told toward the end of the Gospels that the Pharisees are trying to trick him up with trick questions. You know, whichever way he answers, he's going to get it wrong and get into trouble. Uh, let's assume the best of them, shall we? Let's assume that at this point in his ministry, they're just trying to figure him out. Okay, you got this new rabbi in town, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're trying to figure him out. So this is the context. This is that Zitzenleben with respect to Matthew, the Jewish context. In first century Judaism, and you know, I'm going to be over, grossly oversimplifying here, but in first century Judaism, there are two principal schools of rabbinical thought. There's the school of Rabbi Shammai, and there's the school of Rabbi Hillel. And again, at the risk of really oversimplifying it, Shammai is kind of the conservative and Hillel is kind of loose and liberal on a lot of things. Now, they agree on almost everything, but on the things where they differ, that's kind of gives you an idea where they're going with it. And they differ on divorce. With, when we read from Mark, you know, they said, why did Moses give us this provision for giving a writ of divorce? What they're actually referring to is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, and she departs from the house, and so forth. Okay, So he finds some indecency in her. What the heck does that mean? Actually, the Hebrew is if he finds some cause of uncleanness in her. What does that mean? That, you know, and so that's what the rabbis were, de were debating about. What is a cause of uncleanness? And Shammai, being the hard-nosed conservative, says it's got to be something really serious. Okay, uh, something like adultery or abandonment of the Jewish faith, or, you know, idolatry, something serious, right? Hillel takes the view that it can be anything, even a trivial reason. He's quoted as having said, if she burns your dinner, you can divorce her. Okay, so here's, that's the context. This is what the rabbi, the, the Pharisees are saying when they come up to Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Are you with Hillel? That's the context. And I suppose they're fully expecting Jesus is going to say, no, no, I'm with Shammai on this one. Well, what Jesus does is answer the question, but he doesn't answer it the way they want to hear, they, they're expecting. He says, not only is Hillel wrong, but so is Shammai. And then he presents this notion of the radical indissolubility of marriage. The Pharisees are floored by this. They ask, why, why did he give us this provision? And Jesus says, it was because of the hardness of your hearts. Interesting, 
sidebar here. English is a great language. We have so many words. We have about double the words of most other languages. Because we start out with kind of an underlayer of Anglo-Saxon Germanic words, and then with the Norman Conquest in 1066, we get relexified by Norman French, so we have kind of double our words. And then over the course of the centuries, we've added Latin and Greek words, and even in the last 100 years or so, we've added a few more from other languages. Most of our Greek words that come into English are scientific or medical. So it's kind of funny when you're reading the New Testament in the original Greek, because um, it's written in Greek and you come across a word that means something in English and you know, it kind of strikes you funny. He says, it's because of your cardiosclerosis. <laughs> you know, it's like you're having a heart attack. You've got heart disease. But, but what he's saying is, you know, this was a concession for a time because the people were not able to accept the truth. But because Jesus is Almighty God, the lawgiver himself, he's saying, I'm done with that concession. Now I'm going to present the fullness. And he takes us back to the garden. Man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. What God has joined together, man must not separate. This floored the Pharisees. It was completely outside of the box of what they had expected. It floored his disciples. Back to Matthew again. Uh, one, we're, told, we're not told which one it is who says this, um, but uh, you, let's be honest, it's Simon Peter, um, because it just sounds like something he would say, right? He says, uh, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is not expedient to marry. You know, well, that's the way it is. No one should ever get married. And, and, and Jesus recognizes that this is uh, a hard teaching. He says, not all men can receive this precept, but only those for whom it is given. But he doesn't back down from it. Divorce and remarriage are impossible because marriage is radically indissoluble. Now, I know what you're thinking, and, I know you're, and I'm glad you asked. Uh, the, 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 what you're thinking is, but isn't there a provision in Matthew for adultery? And, uh, and I'll say, well, what you're probably referring to then is what is the, called the so-called Matthean exception. It only appears in Matthew in the Matthew accounts, both in, in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19. It does not occur in Mark 10. It does not occur in Luke 16. It does not occur in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. But only in Matthew, you have this little phrase here. And I'll read again from, the from chapter 19, but, it, but uh, it also comes up in chapter 5, where he says, um, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, says the RSV, and marries another commits adultery, except for unchastity. Oh, well, that sounds like if you got your get out of marriage free card, if your wife's unfaithful to you, right? Well, not, not quite so fast there. Because here's the, the thing is, we've got a word for adultery already in the passage. The word is, well, it's a verb form of the word maxeia, which means adultery. But this word, unchastity, the RSV translates as unchastity, uh, is porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia means filthiness. We get our English word pornography from it. Filthy printed material, filthy writing. So Jesus is saying, I say to you, whoever does divorce his wife, except for porneia, and marries another, commits moixeia. 
He's using two different words. He can't possibly mean the same thing. So what does this porneia mean? Well, here, in order to understand this passage, I think it's helpful to think, who is the audience? The audience of, for uh, Matthew's gospel is a Jewish audience. He's writing to Jewish Christians. That's why when Matthew adds this particular phrase, he's adding something that is not in the others because it was probably not original to our Lord. It's kind of a side comment, a marginal note, a footnote explaining what Jesus is saying. So what St. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, is saying is when we're talking about divorce and remarriage, you know, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery, I'm not talking about a case of porneia. Well, let's try to understand what that means. Porneia, again, means filthiness. And remember, when you look back at that passage from Deuteronomy, where he says a man can divorce his wife if he finds some cause of uncleanness in her, if Jesus is saying, in answer to the Pharisees, you can divorce your wife if you find a case of filthiness, that's what it means to say uh, that there's a cause of uncleanness. He hasn't answered the question at all. He's kind of just said the same thing twice. So it cannot be an answer to what the Pharisees are saying. What is then this porneia that only comes up in the context of a gospel that is written for a Jewish audience? Well, let's look at our scriptures and, and try to get at where do we else see that word porneia? And in a context that would be relevant to Jewish Christians. What was the first crisis that came up in the Christian church? first crisis that came up was, you know, remember, all of the early disciples were either Jews or they were Gentiles who had become Jews before uh, they heard the word of the Lord. So like Nicholas of Antioch was one of the first deacons, but he, he was a Gentile convert to Judaism, and then he becomes a Christian. But fairly early on, starting with St. Peter visiting Cornelius, but then certainly with, when St. Paul is traveling all over preaching to the Gentiles, a bunch of Gentiles, non-Jews, are coming to Christ. And the first crisis the church faces is, what do we do with these non-Jews, these, these Gentiles who are becoming Christians? Do they have to become Jews first? And so the church does what it always does. We got a big theological discussion. You come into council together, all the apostles presided over by the Pope, St. Peter, and they argue it out. And it's described in Acts chapter 15. And at the conclusion of it, they come to the conclusion that you don't, if you're a Gentile, you don't have to become a Jew first to be a Christian. But they impose three conditions on Gentile Christians. And these conditions are uh, uh, concessions to the sensibilities of the Jewish Christians. First one. No meat sacrificed to idols. So as a Christian, you have to step away from your pagan past and be committed to the one God. That's the first one. The second one is abstain from meat of strangled animals, that is meat with the blood in it, because that's not kosher. And that would have been considered offensive to the Jewish uh, Christians in that first century. And the third one, you are to abstain from, you guessed it, porneia. 
So they're using the word, and if Matthew's written to a Jewish audience, and this is written with a concession toward Jewish sensibilities, we're talking about the same thing here. This is the Catholic interpretation of this passage. Um, and so when we look at early Christian churches, when we look at 1 Corinthians, written to the Corinthian church in Greece, uh, these are all Greek former pagans who are now Christians. And what do we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? We find a man who is married or has his father's wife. Let's suppose again the best of him. Let us assume that this is not his mother, it is his stepmother. Let us assume furthermore that he's, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, that his father was widowed and remarried late in life to somebody considerably younger. And so, and then his father dies and here's this widow, roughly the same age as the oldest son. And, you know, they got a lot in common. And, uh, and, and there's no biological link between them. So if she had never been married to his father, there wouldn't have been a problem with them getting married. To a Jewish sensibility, though, this was monstrous. This was incest. And St. Paul says, kick him out. Actually, he says, turn him over to Satan. That's porneia. Greco-Roman law, uh, at least among the upper classes in among the Greeks in, in Egypt, you could marry your half-sister. You could marry your father's widow. You could marry, you know, your niece. Um, these things would have been monstrous to Jewish sensibilities. And so that's why we see in Catholic Bibles, although Protestant Bibles will might say, you know, uh, waffle a bit like here we get in, in the RSV about unchastity, uh, older Bibles like the King James or even the Douay Reims will say fornication, just kind of punting because, because uh, fornication just comes from the Latin form of the Greek word porneia. You know, um, uh, so they're just punting on it. Uh, but, uh, but the Catholic Bible that we use at Mass, the New American Bible, just kind of, it doesn't even, doesn't really translate it. It, it explains it by saying, unless the marriage is unlawful. And that's what they're getting at here. So the Matthean exception, with deference to our Protestant brothers and sisters who regard it as a, uh, have regarded it as a, you know, if there's, a, if there's a, adultery would free the, the innocent party to contract another marriage. And the Eastern Orthodox churches will also take that, that view. Um, the Catholic church has never taken that view. Marriage is radically indissoluble. And, and I think that when we look at it, really into the words itself. That's what we get. It makes sense. And the other, the other interpretation I don't think makes sense of the words themselves. So, the Mithian exception really isn't an exception. We have, from the lips of our divine master himself, that marriage is radically indissoluble. And again, that's because marriage witnesses the faithful love Christ has for his church. It witnesses in the Old Testament context the faithful love God has for his people. And that love remains faithful even when we're not. The disciples saw that that was a difficult teaching. And Jesus acknowledged it's a difficult teaching, but he didn't back down. And neither, frankly, can we as a church. I talked about the Zitzenleben of the first 
context, you know, when Jesus actually said this thing in response to this rabbinical uh, controversy going on in the first century. Let's go to the literary context now. The gospel writers are smart cats. When they put things together in the, con in, in the literary context, they are really getting some particular statement of Jesus and they'll use it to illustrate a really strong point and drive it home. Here's something you might, you know, we're so used to hearing in mass little snippets. And I really encourage you to read through the gospel straight through. Mark is nice and short, 16 chapters. You can read it in a setting. One of the things you'll notice in Mark's gospel here, and once you see it, you'll never unsee it. Whenever the disciples are at their absolute densest, when they are as stupid as stupid can be, they completely and utterly miss the point of what Jesus is saying. What's the very first thing Jesus does? He heals a blind man. Does it over and over again in Mark's gospel. Now, if we were to go back in a time machine and see, would that be what had happened? They were walking down the street toward Jerusalem and the disciples are bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then there's blind Bartimaeus. Would that actually be what we would see? I don't know. But that's certainly the literary context that Mark is trying to drive home. It's like, yes, he's, by curing the blind man, he's showing their spiritual blindness. What's the... Uh, literary context for this teaching regarding marriage. Very next thing Jesus does, both in Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter 10. So we get chapter, uh, Mark chapter 10, and he said this to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. He blesses children. He blesses children. And that is deliberate. Whether it was deliberate for Jesus actually doing that at that moment, it's certainly deliberate for the gospel writer. There is a connection between marriage and children, the good of children. We see this, though, developing even well before the gospels. We see this in the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi when he's talking about divorce. He says to the, to the people of Israel, in chapter 2 of Malachi, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor at your hand. You ask, why does he not? And here comes the answer. Because the Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Has not the one God made and sustained for us the spirit of life, and what does he desire? Godly offspring. So take heed to yourselves and let none be faithless to the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And covering one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. The prophet Malachi draws a clear connection again between marriage and children. 
and he regards divorce as unjust, and he regards divorce as, in fact, violence. Violence, perhaps, to the woman who may find herself in a position without being able to care for herself, but certainly violent to the family itself, that it rips apart. Now, I want to be saying, again, I want, like I said at the outset, when we're looking at these things, we have to be very careful not to be pointing our fingers at a particular person, because each one of us is fully, fully capable of being either completely oblivious to our own failings or downplaying and excusing our own failings that they're, you know, rather than being seriously sinful, they're just kind of, you know, quirks and foibles. But those other people, gosh, they've got their problems. And we need to focus, again, you try to get in the narrow way. We need to look at ourselves. And I want to talk about this because, you know what, we live in a society in which divorce and remarriage have become almost normalized. If we look back into our legal history, English, American law, coming out of, out of English law, Protestants, and so this notion that the, uh, that the innocent spouse in, a, in a, a situation of adultery might recover the freedom to to enter another marriage. It was an exception for exceptional circumstances. And then over the course of years and centuries, uh, some additional grounds for divorce were added in our civil law. So you had uh, malicious abandonment, extreme cruelty. So where somebody is being mistreated, but it was always exceptional as a concession to the person who was treated badly. And then getting into the 20th century, though, American, some American states started adding grounds like uh, one of my favorites is incompatibility of temper, which, as Chesterton noted, when he looked at incompatibility of temper and he said, G.K. Chesterton, he said, I'm not sure why anyone in America is, is not divorced because men and women are different, so they're going to have an incompatibility of temper. And... Divorce got gradually more and more normalized, more and more commonplace. It got to be that frauds on the court were being perpetrated. If man wanted to divorce his wife and his wife was okay with that and they're thinking, but there's no adultery going on here, so we don't have any grounds, here's what we do. We get the private investigator who's got the... Uh, the young woman who's on retainer who then she, you know, is photographed with the man going into a hotel and then they're photographed getting into the elevator and then they're photographed with her in a certain degree of deshabille in the, uh, in the hotel room and now you got your evidence for the divorce court and the whole thing is a sham and everybody knew it was a sham. And so the thought was, you know what, perjured testimony is not good for a legal system. Maybe we should clean this up and just be honest about it. This is what people are doing. And so there was a real push in the 1960s toward no-fault divorce. First state to adopt it was California. Bill was, in the 1960s, it was signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. And actually, rather quickly after that, it started getting adopted by a great many states. Minnesota in 1978. Uh, No-fault divorce became the law of Minnesota under Minstat Section 518.06. 
the, there is one ground for dissolution of matrimony, and that is the irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. And that is proven by one party saying there has been irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. The other party can't show up with four marriage counselors and a bishop and say we can save this marriage. That would be irrelevant. Okay, It's no-fault divorce. If a party wants a divorce, it's going to happen. Well, what happens then? This becomes commonplace. And now we find that what was initially a concession to an injured party because the other party behaved really badly, adultery, abandonment, malicious abandonment, extreme cruelty, now becomes normalized. And fully half of our new marriages will end in divorce. And you know what? Catholics don't fare any better than the general population. We have utterly failed to present this teaching that comes directly from the lips of our Divine Master. And what's the result? It shouldn't surprise us. The prophet Malachi knew it, and our Lord knew it, or at least certainly Mark and Matthew present that in that context. The damage is to the weak and vulnerable. The damage is quite often to the poor. It is quite often to women. It is certainly damaging to children. Think about it. The rich, they're going to be able to handle things on their own. Movie stars get divorced, they're going to be okay. Elizabeth Taylor gets her, however many however divorces she had, you know, um, she's going to be okay. But a lot of us are living from paycheck to paycheck, and we're one job loss away from losing our home maybe. Uh, a lot of us are, you know, it's tough. And if you suddenly have to have now two homes instead of one, money is going to be tight. And studies have shown over the, and I'm not going to go into, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm a recovering lawyer and I'm a Catholic cleric. I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not going to go into a great deal of the studies. I'll be just kind of be parroting things that I have seen and read. Um, but there are a great many studies that in the aggregate, women do worse in divorce than men do. So women, there's a feminization of poverty that has happened in the last 50 years as divorce rates have exploded. And children almost always do worse. The weakest and the most vulnerable get the shaft because of this. Let me take you through, there's a group called the Marriage and Religion Research Institute, and there's a, this is a, actually a, a few years old, but they, had a, they have a, uh, you can get it on, on the web, a, uh, Effects of Divorce on Children, and it's a, it's a compendium of, of a number of studies from many different English-speaking uh, countries, so New Zealand, Britain, United States, all over the place, and the results are generally the same. The effects on the family is a cyclical brokenness that continues and repeats itself in future generations. There is a weakening of the parent-child relationship, uh, even the mother-child relationship, certainly the father-child relationship, because as a practical matter, fathers are often excluded from the home to a greater degree. We're, you know, we've, we've tried to get you know, equal parenting time, but even in the best of circumstances where you have two parents who are willing to put aside their differences where it comes to their children and to work together somewhat you know, as best they can, they're not together. 
at the same time. They each have different parenting styles. They're not a team. Kids aren't stupid. Kids will learn how to play them off each other. The parents feel guilty and so they don't want to be the, they don't want to be the mean one. You know, and so uh, uh, the discipline breaks down. There's a weakening of the relationship between uh, the parent and the child. A lot of children uh, coming out of divorced homes have a, uh, an increase in anxiety and a sense of, of uh, a fear of abandonment. Emotional closeness and well-being is damaged. The perception of a father as warm and loving goes way down. Um, there's a weakening of your grandparent-grandchild relationship. Because especially if the parents aren't getting along and you've got one custodial parent, the other grandparents are cut out of the picture. The children's view of divorce, uh, that is a, there's a dramatic change, which means that the divorce in the next generation is even far more likely. Uh, there's, a, there's a weakening of children's ability to handle conflict. And these are study after study are showing these things. Now, let's be clear. Sometimes you have to choose the least bad of several bad options. And obviously, if a child is being neglected or abused or the situation is bad, you've got chemical dependency and you've got, you know, you've got mental health concerns in the family, it could well be that in some circumstances, the least bad option is for the parents to separate. Let's be clear about that. But let's not pretend that the least bad option is a good thing. It's the least bad option. The best thing, if it can be accomplished, is for the biological parents of the child to live in a relationship of love together in the same home with that child, raising that child to maturity. And study after study shows that. Children of divorce frequently depart from the home earlier. Their sexual practices, uh, they're, uh, are, they're, they're much more open toward early sexual, uh, sexual practice. The number of those who have had sexual intercourse at, 18 year, uh, at 14 years of age or younger is significantly higher. That means that they're in danger of being preyed upon by older minors. If you've got a 14-year-old girl and a 17-year-old boy, there's a real power difference in that relationship. It may not be criminal under some of our statutes. Also, the possibility of being preyed upon by adults. Children are looking, if they, especially if they are looking for a father figure, a vulnerable, a vulnerable child to be groomed by somebody who does not have the child's best interests at heart goes way up. The risk of premarital pregnancy, out of, out of wedlock pregnancy, goes up. Uh, increasingly, children of divorce have trouble with romantic relationships, with trust, with general attitude toward marriage, attitudes toward divorce and remarriage, um, on and on and on. Now, is a particular child going to have those same particular things? No, we're all different. We're talking about in the aggregate. So what do we do? What do we do about this? How do we fix this? And honestly, what we need to do is not hide from the problem. 
We, need, we, we can't pretend that it's not a problem. We need to present, as I've hoped I've done here today, present as clearly as we can what the church teaches and why we teach it and why we can't not teach it. We also need to recognize that a lot of people are broken and I know myself that I, even though I grew up in an intact home with loving parents, yeah, I'm broken too. And I always need to be constantly focusing on my own failings so that I can minister to those who are in need. But marriage as a radically indissoluble covenant between a man and a woman that is ordered for uh, you know, the good of the spouses, forming a community of life and love together, a, a, a nurturing home, a domestic church in which children can be raised to uh, maturity as adult human beings, but also to love and know God. That's the ideal. And with God's help, it is not impossible to achieve. Thank you.